Well, good morning. As a uh, special words, they take on uh, probably more meaning some weeks, some months, some days than others, don't they? This uh, this past week, uh, I actually wasn't sure I was going to be up here this morning. I, after having gotten over COVID, I had more sickness. I don't know exactly what hit me after I traveled back and forth to North Carolina Tuesday. And then just as I recovered from that, this morning I uh, woke up with a migraine at 3 a.m. and wasn't sure I was going to be here. So just standing before you as an answer to prayer this morning. I don't say that for any sympathy. Not that I'll turn it away. <laughs> no, but I say that because that in and of itself is an answer to prayer. And it's a reminder of just why we gather together. I wanted to be here this morning. I am glad to be here this morning. And that was my prayer, was I wanted to be with the saints. So I'm glad to be with you this morning. I'm glad to be able to rejoice, to sing together, and to sing those words specifically. As we think about the coming of our Lord, it fits very well with our text that we are in the midst of, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ in Matthew 17. You can go and turn there if you'd like. We'll be there in a moment. I was, uh, I was made aware of, I was, I was not here at the beginning of Canton Bible Church, but I was made aware that yesterday, and I guess this Sunday, would mark the fifth anniversary of this church. It's a blessing, and uh, it's been a blessing to me and to my family in the uh, about three and a half, four years that we have been here. There's also another, I guess, uh, date to mark. We're at the hundredth sermon in our ser- series uh, through the uh, Gospel of Matthew. And uh, this morning may be one of the shortest sermons I've ever preached Uh, here at Canton Bible, and uh, one of the reasons is it's been a long week and it was a rough morning. (laughs) But the other reason is that the text we're going to look at this morning, and this is more pertinent for you, is contains a a lot to think about, a lot to apply. There's a lot that convicts me. And so as I look at this text, as I think about it, I think it's really in the sovereignty of God that I was forced to slow down, which is also going to become pertinent to our text this morning. So that we do not breeze too quickly over these things. I think if we tried to cover too large of a section, maybe what I would have been tempted to have done, we would have stretched ourselves and thought too quickly and too lightly of the things contained in these verses. So I think this will work out as a blessing to us this morning. Because there are implications here. As hard as it may seem to believe, having read this text last week, maybe you've been skimming over it as we're talking right now. How does this directly impact my life today? How is it going to help me to live this week? But in what way does it impact how I think about God, how I worship God, how I live with my children, how I live with my family, how I can be a worker, how I can be a Christian in this life? Sometimes by biblical texts, let's be honest, sometimes they seem very abstract, don't they? It's, it's good, it's true, you know it's right, but how does it apply? I think this is one of those texts where if we will slow down, we'll see that there is much to help us to live in this world as disciples of Jesus Christ. So if you will read along with me, we'll read the first eight verses, recapping a little bit of what we looked at last week from Matthew chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. 
If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Jesus came to them. He touched them. And he said, Get up. Do not be afraid. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning, to be with the body of faith, with fellow believers. As we sing these words, as we sing the words of these songs this morning, as we read texts like Revelation 1, 4 through 8, Father, as we long to be with you. Father, we thank you for the the small taste of that we get, the anticipation it builds when we come together, we sing these words, we worship together, and we open up your word together. May our time in this text this morning, this amazing episode in the life of your son, as we open it up and look at it this morning, may may we see its import, certainly for what we believe and what we understand, but also for our lives and how we engage with one another, and how we engage with the world around us, how we live in light of your return. In your name, amen. Just as a brief recap last week, and not to belabor what we've just read, last week we opened with Jesus going up onto the mountain, Mount Hermon, almost certainly, since that's where he and the disciples were already situated, He took with him his favorites. Yes, Jesus played favorites. Peter, James, and John. He took them up onto the mountain. And he was transfigured before them. And we we talked a little bit about the face and the clothing being the markers of that transfiguration. And we looked in the Old Testament at the consistent witness we have in the Old Testament to the glory of God, to the pre-incarnate Son, to God himself, to divinity in the face and the radiance, as well as in the clothing And just when things couldn't get any more strange, at least to Peter, James, and John, two other persons appear next to him. That we learn are Moses and Elijah. Of all people, why Moses and Elijah? Well, as we discussed last week, almost for sure, it's a reference and a testimony of the law and the prophets. Moses, that representation of all that the Old Testament law held, the, the one to whom the law was given. Elijah, the forebearer of the great prophets, two who also had, unique in their ministry, gone up onto the mountain to commune with God. And so they mark the law and the prophets and the testimony and the witness they are to Jesus Christ. And just like the Old Testament calls for two witnesses, here these two witnesses appear, verifying everything Jesus has been telling these disciples about the coming, and you may remember the term that was used while they were on the mount, the coming exodus. In Jerusalem, the coming departure in Jerusalem, and all that that would entail, the suffering, the mistreatment they would have at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the religious leaders. But all of it was looking forward to that new and greater exodus. 
And as we closed last week, you may remember, and it doesn't say it in Matthew, we have to go to Luke for that, but in Luke, it tells us that right here, between verses 3 and 4, the disciples what? Fell asleep. They were overcome with great sleep. So it is that we open with verse 4 this morning, as they come out of their slumber, and Peter wakes from the sleep that had overwhelmed him. It overwhelmed him, James, and John. He was not alone in this. And as he awakes, he looks and he sees that Jesus is still there, Moses is still there, and Elijah is still there, standing together, talking. It'd be pure speculation at this point to ask what it is that they, were, they had spoken of while they were asleep, since the text doesn't tell us. But Peter wakes up, and you know what it's like when you first wake up, especially out of a very heavy sleep. Perhaps a bit groggy, perhaps in a half-sleep stupor, he cries out, It is good for us to be here. Leave it to Peter to shout something out. But what does he mean? It is good for us to be here. Duh. It's awesome that you're there. It's fascinating. It's amazing what you're witnessing. Why does he say it is good for us to be here? What was running through Peter's mind? Well, remember, he and the others have been anticipating the promises of the Messiah. Promises linked to the establishing of his kingdom. They've heard from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, their understanding of the kingdom was immature. It had not yet grown. Jesus, we looked at in chapter 16, began... In the middle of chapter 16, began to unfold, to teach, to explain things concerning the kingdom to the disciples and to make it clearer to them what this entailed. That there was the suffering of the Messiah that was an absolute necessity before the establishing of the kingdom. Something they didn't like. Peter even tries to take Jesus aside and correct him. He gets sternly and quickly rebuked. But they were excited about the coming kingdom. And so Jesus has spent the past couple of weeks telling them all about it, but also ex explaining to them that he must first go and die. Well, Peter's up here. Jesus is transformed before him. He's transfigured before him. Most likely, Peter is sitting here thinking, this is great. We get to skip the whole death and dying part. We just went straight to the glorification of the Messiah. I guess Jesus was wrong. No, but it's good that we're here. It's good that we get to see this. It's good that we get to begin this worship. It's good that you do not have to die. How do we know this was likely what he was thinking? Because of what he says next. And, and this is going to sound a little bit weird to you at first, especially if you haven't studied up on your Old Testament history and prophecy lately. First, we should note, Peter explains, exclaims, if you wish, even though Peter is a little off base here, he, he does seem to have learned his lesson from the last time he tried to instruct Jesus. Instead of instructing Jesus, he shows deference. If you wish, we will make three tabernacles here for you. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Tabernacles? What is Peter talking about? I mean, is he dreaming? Is he confused? Is he still half asleep? 
Is he going to remake the massive tabernacle that the Israelites carried around in the wilderness after the Exodus? Three of them set them up. The ones that they took up and put down, I mean, those things were massive. Well, no. And if you have your ESV Bible or NIV, it really translates the term a little more appropriately here than the New American Standard Bible. He's offering to make three shelters or what may have been called booths. These were part of what was called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle doesn't just have to be the tabernacle. It's a term that could refer to these small little booths or tents or shelters. And there was a feast that was established back in Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 43, where the Israelite people would celebrate and remember God's provision during the wilderness wanderings. They would remember his, the exodus. They would remember the giving of the law. They would remember then the 40 years of wilderness wanderings and God's continual provision through that time when they had no permanent roof over their head. So they would build these little booths and they would camp under them. Some of you I know love camping. And so they set up, they had a time every year when they would all camp. They would all set up under these booths to remember what it was like when they had no permanent place. In some ways it was similar to our Thanksgiving It was celebrated after the fall harvest. It was that thanksgiving to God for his provision, for the giving of the, look back to the giving of the law. It looked back to the grumbling of the first generation and a reminder of what not to do. It looked back to God's deliverance through the wars and from the peoples of the lands that that were both terrified of them, hated them, and enemies of them. It looked back to God's provision of bread from heaven, the manna, of water, out of dry ground and out of rock. I look back to the doves that he brought to provide the, f- the meat. But it was more than just a thanksgiving for what took place in the past. This Feast of Booths didn't just look backwards. It was intended as a reminder and a means of creating an anticipation, an expectation, and an excitement about what was to come, of looking forward. Because the Old Testament has always taught that there will be a new and a greater exodus. That there will be a greater prophet. We looked at that last week. One who would come, who would lead people out of their sin. And it was this anticipation that this Feast of Booths really looks forward to. And it's because of what God's done in the past that we can have confidence of what he will do in the future. Later in Israel's history, the prophet Zechariah tells of a time when all the nations of the earth will celebrate the Feast of Booths in Zechariah 14. At that time, the King, the Lord of hosts, the Messiah, will be reigning in Jerusalem. So when Peter says he wants to make three booths or shelters, he's excited. He's excited because he's thinking Jesus is about to reign. Let's get the party going. Let's skip to the good part. You see, what Peter inadvertently is saying is that while he was excited about this new exodus, he wanted the exodus without the Passover. He was excited for the establishing of the booths. He was looking at the glorified Messiah But what has completely slipped his mind yet again 
or he's purposely ignoring it, is that the Passover is still needed. The sacrifice is still needed. The Messiah must still suffer and die. He wanted the feast without the hard work of preparation. Jesus, you've been transfigured. We have Moses and Elijah here. Let's get things started where all the nations will now come and worship you. Now, that's a good thing to want, isn't it? And it's not wrong to expect that. We really can't fault Peter too much here. No human has ever witnessed what Peter, James, and John saw that day. To look upon the glorified Christ on a mountain speaking with Elijah and Moses? How could you think of anything else? Of course, everything else Jesus had said about death, dying, and suffering in Jerusalem had left his mind. All he could see in this present circumstance was the Messiah in his glory. But notice what happens in verse 5. Peter is still speaking. Apparently he had more to say. We just don't know what it was. Probably best for everybody. He gets cut off. A bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice out of the cloud spoke. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. There's a lot to unpack there. First, what, or more appropriately, who is within this bright cloud? You know the answer. It's God. God the Father. We know this for a couple of reasons. One, this is exactly what the Israelites experienced in the Exodus in the wilderness. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 40. Almost all the way back to the beginning of your Bibles. Very last chapter of Exodus, down in verse 34. This closes out the book. Which makes perfect sense as well. It's it's amazing the thematic ties that are here as they're talking about Jesus' Exodus. And the end of the book of Exodus, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. By the way, that word tabernacle, when translated into Greek, is the same Greek word used by Peter here when he said, let me build three of them. Only he was talking about those three small ones. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel. But it's not only from that. You don't only have to know your Old Testament to know that's who it was, because the cloud speaks, or at least a voice comes out of the cloud. And we know it's God the Father because the cloud speaks and says, this is my beloved Son, my chosen one. This is familiar language. This is not even the first time we've heard this utterance from heaven, is it? The beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was being baptized by John the Baptist. 
as he was raised up from the water, the spirit descended like a dove, not a dove, but like a dove, and a voice from heaven came forth saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's the stamp of authority and approval on his message and his words yet again. Twice, God from heaven has testified that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And what does he add to this declaration? Listen to him. Listen to him. This is correction. This is telling Peter to stop and listen to Jesus. Pay attention to what he says. Pay attention to what he has been saying. In this immediate context, Peter, he still must suffer and die. This interaction is really a, it's a very helpful reminder. It's a helpful reminder not to let circumstances drive how we interpret Scripture. See, Peter was caught up in, in the moment. And it was an amazing moment to be caught up in. I, I probably would have been right there with him. But he's let those circumstances dictate his interpretation of Scripture. Even worse, he's allowed those circumstances to cause him to ignore the words of Christ. I wonder how often we get to a place where we let our circumstances, good or bad, impact what we should believe about God's word, what he has said. I mean, how many times do we get overwhelmed and, and we just simply forget God's word? We forget what verses he said. We forget the comfort he's offered. We forget what he's told us to do in those times. Or what about when things go very well? Do we remember to quickly give thanks? Do we turn to him with lips of praise? I think if we were to pull ourselves and be honest with ourselves, we'd find that we do it less frequently than we should. Instead, what we need to do is we need to slow down and listen. We need to follow the advice of the prophet Habakkuk, who notes at the end of Habakkuk 2, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be still before him. In our busyness, in our rushing about, in the circumstances of life, in the trials and the tribulations and the struggles, in the exaltations and the excitement and the things we enjoy, in all of these things we allowed them to crowd out God's word, what he has said and how we are to act. Now hopefully it's not every time, but one time is bad enough. And so we want to remind ourselves to be still before him, to listen. That word listen is something of a double entendre. Where it's, yes, it's to hear. But if you have children or have had children, when you tell them to listen to what I say, are you merely saying, hear what I say and then go do whatever you want? It may look like that sometimes. Certainly not with my children. No, it's to obey. In fact, oftentimes the word listen simply means obey. And how do these three disciples respond to this word of God? 
When the word of the Lord came to them, they worshiped. Verses 6 and 7. They fell down to the ground and were terrified. Now, this is important. Watch, watch why this is so important. You see, there's a right time and a wrong time to be afraid. The disciples had already experienced and demonstrated what wrong fear looks like more than once. You remember that time on the boat? Storm rolls in. Jesus is asleep because there's really nothing to be terrified about. And yet from human perspective, these grizzled sailors, fishermen, used to the storms on the Sea of Galilee, they become absolutely terrified, so much so that they wake Jesus up. I imagine you have to be pretty afraid to wake Jesus up, the one who's working miracles all around you. When he needs rest, you let him rest. Jesus wakes up, and what does he say to them? Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? But he didn't stop there. He says, you men of little faith. And he didn't say they had no faith. We've talked about that. But he said, you men of little faith. You see, in that boat with that storm raging, the worst that could have happened to them, the absolute worst, is that they died. Now, that may sound pretty bad. But as Scripture makes clear, there's something far worse than death. And notice the contrast. Here they are terrified because the word of the creator of the universe, God Almighty has come to them, has even rebuked them a bit. This is the appropriate time to fear. And it's because this is the one who, according to Matthew 10, 28, can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28 reads, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is where all fear should be. Do you remember after Jesus calmed the storm on the sea, it went from they were fearful to they were greatly terrified. Why was that? The storm's gone. It's because they came face to face with God Almighty. And they recognized who it was who was with them on the boat. And so too here, these three realize who it is that is speaking to them from the cloud, and so they are greatly afraid. Proverbs says that the what of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Because the fear of the Lord causes you to shut up and be still. It causes you to listen. And when we stop, when we listen, we can then prepare to obey. When they were in the boat in the storm, Jesus rebuked them. But here, watch what he does. And think about where else he's done this. Here they are, trembling and afraid, worshiping their faces prostrate on the ground, and he walks over and he does what? Touches them. Where have we seen that? We've seen him go up and touch the leper. We've seen him heal. You see, this is not a mark of rebuke. This is one who cares 
and has concern. And he gently lifts them up. Everyone else has departed. The cloud is gone. And he says, do not be afraid. And he lifts them up. The gentleness, the compassion, there is no rebuke here. They feared rightly. And so we read that they did raise their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus himself alone. The object of their fear was gone, but the impression he had left certainly was not. And this is where we're going to stop this morning in the text, but we're not done. Because there's another important question for us to consider from these verses. And it's, how do you respond when God speaks? Now you might be sitting there thinking, John David, God has never descended in a cloud and spoken to me. If he has, come find me afterward, we need to talk. He didn't call my phone, he didn't speak and audibly call to me. Probably not. But you see, when he descended... In a cloud that day, when Jesus was transfigured on that mountain, it made even more sure, more certain, the words you have in your hand this morning. God's words, the Bible. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1. By the way, you will see how indelibly ingrained upon the mind of Peter, this event was in Matthew 17 as you read this text. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, we're going to read all the way through 21. Peter's writing to fellow believers much, much later in his life, nearing the time of probably only a couple of years before his martyrdom at most. And he writes and says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. And you can read all those things. It was how to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling. By the way, that's the word tabernacle or tent. To stir you up by way of reminder. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What is he about to talk about? The Mount of Transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. So, because of this, we have the prophetic word. Holy Scriptures, made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter for one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see... 
God has spoken to you. He has spoken to you more loudly, clearly, and authoritatively than that voice did that day on the mountain. Because this, what you hold in your hands, has been made more sure. If you will only read it. He's spoken in a way that is just as clear. It is just as significant as if it had been out of that cloud that day. If you read your Bible, if you're listening to faithful preaching, if you hear scripture read or remember a verse, God is speaking. That is how he speaks today. And so the question then becomes, are you listening? Are you listening? And I don't mean simply hearing. Are you listening to what he says, to the instructions that he gives? And are you obeying? Are you acting on them? You see, God's word is provided as a protection for us in this life, as a blessing for us. But do you stop and listen? How do you respond to God's word? How seriously do you take the instruction to obey and listen? Do you stop? Are you still? And do you consider? When God's word is rightly read and interpreted, do you humble yourself and obey it? Do you rightly fear God's word and the one who gave his word? Children, imagine for a moment, I'm speaking to you, imagine for a moment you went to the zoo. You went there to see all of the animals, but they took away all the cages, took away all the signs warning you not to pet the lions, the tigers, and the bears. Some of you would love that. There's no sign saying don't play with the monkeys, don't handle the venomous snakes. Would that be a good thing? Not at all be a dangerous place. We need instructions. We need protection. The reason we can enjoy the zoo or animal parks is because of the rules that are in place. You see, God's instructions and his word is intended to protect you. It's intended to protect me from harm that this world has. So just like we obey the signs at the zoo or your parents obey traffic signs to stay safe, so we should obey God's word in order to live safely in this world. But you know, it's even more than that. It's even more than just protection and safety. Those instructions in the Bible, they prepare us for the life to come. They prepare us for heaven. They help us to get excited about heaven. What we read in Revelation 1, 4 through 8, which you can read throughout the rest of Revelation. We need to read them so we start getting excited about heaven. Because that's our forever home. As we close, I want to point out one thing Peter had right. He was excited about the kingdom of God. He was excited about the kingdom of heaven. For all of the missteps he made, and he learned from them, all the missteps, if I could have just an ounce of his excitement about the kingdom of heaven. He was excited about what was to come, about what we read together from Revelation. This is one of the greatest blessings of the Christian life, being able to lift our eyes from the toil of this life and anticipate with excitement the life to come. But you see, if you're here this morning, 
and you have never repented of your sins, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you don't have that hope. And so I plead with you, do not leave here this morning without confessing your sin, without repenting of it, of recognizing your spiritual neediness and crying out to God. Learning to fear Him, the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. And as we've said so many times, there is not one person He will turn away. No matter how much sin you may think you have, no matter how unforgivable you may think you are, there is not one that he will turn away that comes to him crying out in repentance. So do that while it is still today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for the clarity with which it speaks. Father, help us to listen. Father, as we go through this week, as we go about our days, help us to be still and listen. To not let our circumstances drive our understanding, our interpretation, our application of Scripture, but to stop, to pray, and to listen. Thank you for this body. Thank you for those who are here this morning and for those who are absent. Pray that you will strengthen them, that you will encourage them to provide healing where healing is necessary. That you allow the body to continue to grow in its diligence, in the doing of good, the meeting of needs, and the proclaiming of your gospel. That we might see your kingdom growth as we share the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen.